The scripture reading today is from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands. For the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Good morning. Um, I have the privilege this morning of starting us off on a new series in the book of Proverbs. We're titling it Life in the Land of Death. And uh, next week we're going to be giving more focused attention to what that means This morning we're going to be talking about fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. So I just wanted to get that out as a disclosure. And then uh, I'm going to be doing the first three messages as kind of a foundational um, understanding the book of Proverbs. And then from there we're going to break off and the, the, the preaching burden is going to be divvied up among... Um, a few others, and we're just going to be targeting the various topics that the book of Proverbs addresses along the way. So we're going to do some foundational, how do we understand this book, and then um, we're going to break off into the specific topics. So that's kind of the basic approach, and I just wanted to make sure you guys all were aware of that as we started off. But nonetheless, here I am with the awesome privilege um, of just starting us off in this awesome, great book. So praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, I bow my knees down toward your temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And I pray that you would help me now to be confident in the fact that you love your name and you love your word more than I do even. But in that, I do love your word. Help me and help all of us to rejoice in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if God were to come to you or to us and offer you anything that you wanted, what would you request? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Perhaps it would be a better job, maybe with better income, or the winning numbers to the lottery. Let's be honest. Maybe a better house or nicer property. Maybe it would be a better looking body or a better functioning body. Right? With better health and less pain. Maybe it could be musical or athletic talent or ability? What would you request? Interestingly, in the Bible, there was such a question. It was directed at a man named Solomon, and amazingly, among all the things he could have chosen, he chose wisdom. 
And this pleased God. I just want to say a few things about Solomon. And um, we, we, we look at Solomon as the author and perhaps the series editor of the book of Proverbs. He makes the biggest contribution within the book. And um, I think he's kind of overseeing the project for all of the other contributors in the book. So we look to him as mainly the, the author. And we look to him as the one who is, at this point in human history, the wisest man on the face of the planet. So I want to, just so we're all on the same page here, uh, just give us some overviews of the book of Proverbs so we can understand it just a little bit better. Now Solomon, as you recall, was the son of King David, right? Um, So which means the Israelites, who were God's people, were just settling into the land that God had promised to Abraham. So God had made a promise to Abraham, and up until this point, the Israelites were kind of wandering and sojourning and making their way along. And through David and his conquest and his military prowess, he was able to settle the Israelites in the land that God had promised them, and along comes Solomon. And as the Israelites were settling into the land, um, Solomon asks for wisdom, and now God gives Solomon wisdom. Um, well, among the other things that are in- important about Solomon, Solomon was known for building the temple of God, right? And the reason why that's significant is up until this point, the Israelites carried around the tabernacle as they sojourned. They had to set it up and tear it down, set it up and tear it down, set it up and tear it down. And the tabernacle and temple reminded the Israelites of something very crucial and very important, and that was God was dwelling among his people. And the temple, which was this permanent structure, indicated God was in the land dwelling with his people. And perhaps this is the first time this happened, really, We don't see a picture of God dwelling in the land with his people since the Garden of Eden. So here comes wisdom. Solomon gets wisdom. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But uh, it's important to understand that uh, the book of Proverbs assumes that the Israelites have a knowledge of the law of God. The law of God is Genesis through Deuteronomy. And um, as you notice in the book of Proverbs, if you go through it, it doesn't concern itself or it doesn't explicitly teach a lot of doctrine and theology. It's very practical to daily life, right? And that's one of the reasons why we really like it. Uh, It's practical and it's concerning right living in a covenant relationship with God. Each, uh, besides Proverbs 1 through 9, which are longer discourses, Proverbs 10 through 31 essentially can stand each verse on its own. And each proverb is a little truth statement that contains what life is like and what it should be like in covenant relationship to God. So Proverbs is practical because it's concerning itself with what life now should look like as it's lived in covenant with God. How does it make sense? How does it work out? So that's where we're at. Now, many people love the practicality of this book. It's, it's, it's attractive, isn't it? You can just open up your Bible to Proverbs. You could pick any one. And in, in a sense, it's relevant to my life. I can apply it, right? But we have to be careful that the great attraction, namely the 
uh, the, the pragmatic nature, the practicality, the great attraction doesn't become the great distraction from God. Proverbs should not be reduced to a bunch of moralisms that we can basically just read and say, okay, I'm just going to apply this to my life and just forget God. And more particularly, the great attraction, namely the practicality, shouldn't be the great distraction from Jesus. And I'm going to show us in just a little bit how the Proverbs actually is a book about Jesus and can only make sense in Christ. It's pointing forward to Christ, right? So maybe you're the type of person who really just loves practical. Just tell me how this applies to my life. Don't bother me with propitiation and sanctification and justification or anything else all right? Just tell me how this applies. Don't bother me with these theological concepts, right? We all have that kind of tendency, or maybe we know people like that. Um, just as a word here, theology, knowledge about God. It's simply knowledge about God. If we understand theology as knowledge about God, everybody here is a theologian. If I came up to you and said, are you a theologian? You'd be like, no, no, that's not for me. That's, uh, somebody has to get paid to do that, right? Well, if you, make a, uh, if you make a statement about God, you could say something as simple as God is love, or an atheist would say there is no God. That's a theological statement, you see, because it's asserting something about God. So the question isn't whether or not you are a theologian. The question is, are you a good theologian or a bad one? So everybody here is a theologian. If you make any kind of assumption about God and say anything that is either true or false about God, that's a theological statement. So we all do theology. And the Proverbs, even though it doesn't explicitly teach theology, it assumes theology. It's totally undergirded by the law of God. It assumes that the hearer would have heard the law of God, and now it's taking that law and making it practical for life. On the flip side, Proverbs is teaching us something really crucial about the nature of theology, and that is, if theology doesn't become practical for life, if it doesn't translate into life transformation, your theology is deficient, That's kind of a bold statement. I should duck. Right? If our theology doesn't translate into life, you see, the Proverbs takes knowledge of God and says, now that knowledge has to mean something for life. Here's how I get that. Proverbs 3, 19 through 20, the Lord, by wisdom, he founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down dew. So every aspect of all creation and all of life is owned by God. Every aspect of creation, every aspect of this world was created by God and his wisdom is now implicated in that which means that God has something to say about all of life because he is the creator and the owner of every square inch of this universe. That means anything that we know about God has to translate into all of life. All right? All aspects of life reveal something about God, and the truth is there as well, that God has something to say about all of life. God matters, you see. 
for our money. He has something to say about your checkbook. God matters for the way that we use our tongue. God matters for the, our work ethic and whether or not you're lazy. God matters and he has something to say about your sexuality and your sex life, which is one of the most common topics in this book. God matters for the friends that you choose and your family members and your spouse and your marriage. God matters for all of it. So knowing God must translate into all areas of our lives because God is the creator of it all. In the Bible, we see knowledge of God has to turn into practical life outworking, life transformation. Um, Some would accuse God at this point, perhaps, of being pervasive and controlling. What does God have to do with any of those aspects of my life? We just kind of study him and leave him in his little box and leave him in his little vacuum. I don't want God in my business. If you're wise and if you are seeking to follow God, let me say this. I want God in my business. Doesn't this world, I mean, how many millions and billions of dollars is spent on magazines or pop psychology or any other kind of self-help that teaches me, how do I do finances? How do I do this? How do I do marriage? How do I do parenting? Everybody wants wisdom for life. Everybody wants to know how to live. It starts with God. God has something to say about it all. It's not confining that God touches every single sphere of our lives. Brothers and sisters, this is liberating, don't you see? That the Creator is saying something to you about every nook and cranny of your life. Thank you, God, for speaking into that. It matters. So Proverbs is here to confront the theological egghead in us. The desire just to know knowledge and I want more teaching, more teaching, more teaching. I just want... Yeah, well, it has to translate into something. We have to have a theology of God, and we have to have a reality of God. You see, God is not a theological concept that we study in a vacuum. Rather, he is the creator that we submit to in every area of life so that we can know him. All right, so the purpose of the Proverbs is to gain wisdom In 1, 2 through 6, we gain wisdom and instruction in righteousness, justice, and equity for the young and the old. It's designed to address young people who need wisdom. Young people, children, teens, you need wisdom. You need instruction. Guess what? Old people, we need it too. I'm in the middle, actually. But I still need wisdom. So for our purposes, we've been talking about wisdom. That's the point of the book. That's the purpose of the book. What exactly is wisdom? I bet if we kind of floated around and said, what's wisdom to you? We probably all have varying uh, understandings of what wisdom is about, right? We spend some time trying to figure out, what's wisdom? This is what it means to be smart. This is what it means to be wise. Well, here, for, uh, just for the sake of clarity and so that we're all on the same page, I just want to offer to you uh, a definition that we'll be working off of. This certainly maybe isn't even the very best definition that could possibly be offered to you, but it's biblical nonetheless. And um, so this is what it is. This is what I would 
commend to us as what we define wisdom as. It's the skill of applying the knowledge of God to all of life, right? The skill of applying the knowledge of God to all of life. I really hope that you write that down or memorize it or something. Memorize scripture first and then memorize that. The skill of applying the knowledge of God to all of life. As all of life flows from God and to God, life starts with the knowledge of God. You can't know anything about anything until you know God, and then you know something about everything. Because God is the creator. He is the one who touches all aspects of life. Wisdom suggests that our knowledge of God is incomplete until it is applied to life and transforms every area of our lives. Now, skill. So we have applying the knowledge of God to all of life. And we're talking about it in terms of a, it's a skill of applying the knowledge of God to all of life. And skill kind of, I mean, at first glance for me, I don't know how you guys think about it, but it seems kind of unspiritual, right? Skill and developing skill is something that you tend to think of in terms of, uh, you know, like playing an instrument or fixing computers or playing a sport. We think about skill in terms of that, right? We don't look at spiritual people and say, wow, look at he got skills, But the reality is, we need skill. Hebrews 5.14 said, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Developing skill through practice and meditation and training is a part of the Christian life. It's a very spiritual thing. You see, everybody has the word of God in their possession here, And it's like a scalpel. It's a sharp, two-edged sword. Do you realize that you can do a lot of damage with God's word? Has anybody ever damaged you with God's word? Have you ever damaged somebody else with God's word? Do you want your surgeon coming into the operating room with skill or not skill? You want skill. You want people and you want to grow in the ability to handle the word of God so that you can accurately and appropriately apply it to all areas of your lives. Otherwise, you can wreak havoc. All right? We need skill. I remember when I was a new believer, an infant believer, I loved Jesus. But my lifestyle at that point was wildly out of sync with biblical wisdom. Why? Because I've lacked knowledge and I lacked skill. I didn't see how God's truth now impacted and transformed my life in various areas. Skill. We need skill. All right. And that's true for all of us too. Many of you guys are pretty well transformed, but there are still nooks and crannies of your heart that are covered in darkness. There are still nooks and crannies of your heart that need the transforming power of the light of God's word into it. Amen? And that'll be true until Jesus returns, and he shines light into every room, and every part of our lives will be transformed and lived in conformity to him. Now, Proverbs 1 to 9 features discipleship relationship, a discipleship relationship. We see a lot of discourses and the father coming to a son. 
And that's a unique section of the book. And just for you ladies and everybody else out there, it's a father-son, but that paradigm really is applicable to mothers and daughters, to teachers and students, to disciplers and disciplees. It can apply in that way. And here's what's interesting about it. The wisdom, I'll say this, is achieved relationally because wisdom's goal is ultimately relational. Right? Isn't it interesting that we see the acquisition of wisdom done relationally? Why? Because the goal of wisdom is relational. To live in relationship with other people. To live in relationship in the creation. And to live in relationship ultimately with God. Wisdom is about life. Wisdom is about living in relationship to God. Therefore, it is acquired relationally. At GCF, our mission statement is to make disciples. Jesus called us to make disciples. It's, discipleship is not information transfer. If, if discipleship was merely about gaining knowledge, we could just hand you a book. Welcome to church. See you in heaven. Right? No, we need to go to community groups. We need parenting. Children need parents. Parents need help. We need disciplers. We need discipleship, right? We need men's meetings. We need women's meetings. We need retreats. We need all of that because we need to grow in skill in relationship. See that? It's not information transfer. Wisdom is about all of life, living life before God. All right. So it's the skill of applying the knowledge of God to all of life. So that's the point of the book of Proverbs, gaining wisdom. What's the, the key to Proverbs? It's the fear of the Lord. Right? The key to finding wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And that's what I really want to help us understand here. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So fearing God is really the key to gaining wisdom. But if you're not really new or really not familiar with the phrase fearing God, that could sound negative, right? So what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to fear God? I'll say two things about it. First, fearing God is the key to finding wisdom. However, fearing God seems, uh, it's, well, because it seems negative. Um, I'm sorry, I got mixed up here. Um, let me talk about the wise and the fools. Here's what it is. Fearing God means living in dependence to God and acknowledging that he is creator and owner of all things. Wise people in the book of Proverbs are those who accept God as creator and owner of all things. And in light of this, they see themselves as a creation, as a creature who responds to God. This makes wise people inherently humble and teachable. They approach life with a, let me learn, I have something to learn. I have something to learn from you. Ultimately, 
I have something to learn from God. He is the creator. I need him to make sense of this whole thing. That's the wise person. The fool, on the other hand, and Proverbs is this great book of contrasts, right? Wise, fool, righteous, wicked, life, death. So fools, on the other hand, they have declared their autonomy from God, right? And instead of being teachable, they have become proud, arrogant, wise in their own eyes, as it says in Proverbs 3, 7. Don't be wise in your own eyes. This is the heart of folly. The heart of folly is the one who says, I'm living in my own land now. I'm my own God. I don't need God over me telling me what to do. I'll just trust in common sense or whatever else it might be. Right? What's the best example of folly in the Bible? Or maybe the most important example? Where do we see the heart of folly best demonstrated in Scripture? Is it not with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? What did Adam and Eve do in the Garden of Eden? They were approached with God from, by God with some very basic commands. Do this, don't do that. And they took the word of the enemy and they said, hey, this whole idea of being like God, being our own thing, that sounds like a good idea. And they set up their own little reality in rebellion to God. They didn't accept God as creator over their lives. This is folly. This is what it means to be a fool. It means to declare your autonomy from God. You're not creator over my life. Or you're not creator over this aspect of my life, you see. I'll accept you as God, but when it comes to my finances, no. This was sin, and this was the fountain from which all evil comes pouring out. And that's why Proverbs 3, 5 says, or 3, 5 through 7, fear the Lord, turn away from evil. What's evil? What is evil in the biblical sense? Turning to yourself. Trusting in yourself. That's evil. Evil isn't going and, you know, bombing things and blowing things. That is evil. But that comes from the foundation of, I've declared my autonomy from God. That's the fountainhead of all evil that gets perpetuated throughout the human race. Um, Folly reminds me of a scene in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You guys ever seen this? Right? The abominable snowman. This uh, little elf is running away and he's trying to save Rudolph. And they're running away and they're trying to get away from this uh, scary abominable snowman, this icy monster. And then as they're running to the shore, the edge of the ice, it's meeting the water. It's a little bit like Moses with the Israelites going into the Red Sea. You're like, oh no, they're going to get eaten by the abominable snowman. What happens? He goes to the very edge, takes out his chisel, and then he starts floating away to safety on his own little chunk of land. Now, that's a positive, but in the negative, that's what Adam and Eve did. Except they weren't chased by the abominable snowman. They were approached by a loving God with good and loving commands for them. And you know what they did? Get away from him. Start drifting away to death. 
And I want you to have that picture in your mind as we build on this series in the Proverbs. That's what folly is. It's the desire to create your own little reality in which God doesn't have lordship over it. That's the heart of a fool. And the heart of a wise man says, no, I want God. I want God in all aspects of my life. All right? This is what uh, Paul Tripp said. Human beings live out one of only two identities. That I am ultimate and autonomous. That's the heart of a fool. I'm ultimate. I'm autonomous. I have desires. I follow them. Or uh, that I am created and dependent on God. The question underlying all human thought, motive, and behavior is, will I live out my identity as a creature of God and for the believer as a child of God, or will I live as my own God with no higher agenda than my own satisfaction? Wisdom, folly. The wise person says, God is creator of all. This is what it means to fear God. God, you are creator I'm a creature, I submit myself to you, all right? The fool says, no, my wants, my desires are the highest reality, and I will pursue that. And this message rings in our culture, does it not? With statements like, follow your heart. You know what that's code for? Be wise in your own eyes. Follow your heart? You know what that is? That is encouraging you to be evil. It sounds so harsh when you say it that way, but that's, I think that's biblical. Believe in yourself. This is folly. This is evil. This is exactly where everything went wrong. And it's stemmed from Adam and Eve in the garden when they claim their autonomy from God. Okay, number two, fearing God means trusting in God. All right? Or obeying God. If we acknowledge him as creator, we must respond to him as such. Psalm 115.11 says this, You who fear the Lord, what next? Trust in the Lord, for he is their help and their shield. If you fear the Lord, you know how you know if you're fearing God and fearing the Lord? Do you trust in him? It's very, it's very simple. God says he's Lord. Okay, I will trust in that. Here's a litmus test. If you know if you fear God, do you actually trust him? Do you do what he says? Children, you know how you know if you fear God, if you're developing a heart in you that's fearing God? Do you submit yourself to your parents? That's a good way to tell. Am I developing a heart that's fearing God? That respects him as creator of all things? Our natural tendency is towards folly, towards autonomy, towards self-trust. Right? Imagine the universe had a, uh, was like a cockpit, or it had a cockpit or a control room. Imagine this for just a minute. That the, the universe was run by dials and knobs and everything like that, and God sat in the chair and controlled everything. Right? A lot of times, the heart of the fool says, let me in that cockpit, I'm going to take over from here. God's not doing things to my liking, I need to take over. Except here's the problem. You get into the cockpit room... And you realize that the motherboard is as big as the United States of America. And you need a car to travel five or six days just to get from one knob to the other, much less turn it. 
And you start realizing, I'm way over my pay grade. I'm way above and beyond my pay grade here. You sit in the cockpit of the universe. You try to be autonomous. You try to be your own God. You take the control room of your life. Here's what happens. You realize you're in way over your head. But I have to figure this out. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to worry. I have to worry now because I'm God. I'm sitting in the control room of my life and I have to worry because this is way above and beyond what I can do. See how that works? I must worry. It's my job. I'm God and I can't run the universe so I have to worry. Or the reverse is true. Bitter. Where's God in this? How can he leave me with this? Right? Proverbs 14, 26. The fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord, we have strong confidence. Fearing God means trusting him in every single area of our lives, and it means trusting him to sit in the control room of the universe and let him do his thing, and we joyfully submit and say, God's got it. He's got it. That's the fear of the Lord. We have strong confidence. We don't have to figure it out. That's for God to do. Amen. Hallelujah. Isn't that great news? All right. Last, I want to connect the dots here. The Proverbs is a gospel book. How does it relate to Christ? I want us to see this. Solomon was the wisest man in history up until this point. But if you don't know the end from the beginning, how did Solomon's life end? Did it end in wisdom? No. It ends in folly. You know what's interesting? Solomon or the book of Proverbs. You know one of the, one of the biggest topics in the book is? Stay away from the forbidden woman. How did Solomon fail the forbidden woman? You might say, shoot, should we throw the book out of the canon? We can't respect anything this guy has to say. Right? He did exactly what he, what he told us not to do. But here's, what I, here's how I reconcile that. Number one, the Proverbs is still inspired by God. It's not a book about, from Solomon. Ultimately, it's a book from God, from the Holy Spirit. And second of all, pro, or I'm sorry, Solomon's failures actually teaches us something very crucial about the book. How so? Well, I'm glad you asked. It teaches us that you can't just read Proverbs and do it. You need the Holy Spirit. It's not about, oh, I should do this. Okay, I will do that. No, you won't. (laughs) Right? We can't simply read about wisdom and then become wise. Why? Because we are born in Adam. Adam was inherently a fool. Folly is rooted deeply into my heart. I will at any point, at any given time, turn towards folly and make myself my own God. It's like this weed, the pride or the weed of pride, right? You have to kill it every single day. Kill it, kill it, kill it. You do that year after year after year. And if you missed one day, the weed would be like, is it my turn to be God now? Didn't kill me. So it must, it must be my turn now to be God again. That's what it's like. If you don't kill it one day, it will sprout up. 
That is our natural disposition. Who is the wisest man in the history of the world? Not Solomon. It was Jesus. Don't you see? It was Jesus. How do we see wisdom in Jesus? Here's how we see wisdom in Jesus. He never claimed his autonomy from God. You see, Solomon was a man who was not content to be just a man. He wanted to be God. Jesus was God who was content to become a man. Jesus reverses the folly that we have inherited through Adam. And where do we see Jesus' wisdom? In the Garden of Eden, or not the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what he prays? He becomes content to be a man all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you think it would have been tempting for Jesus to claim his autonomy and say, you know what, Uh, uh, this is where I step out? Yes, it would have been tempting, and indeed he was tempted. But did he do it? No. We see wisdom in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. You see that? That is the heart of a wise man. I am not my own. God, you are my father, and I will submit to this in this part of my life. That's wisdom. That is the birthplace of wisdom. We don't have that. You see, Adam said, not your will be done, but my will be done. That's what Adam said. Jesus says, not my will be done, but your will be done. There's a reversal. You see that? And therefore, we can't be wise. Don't attempt this on your own power. You have to realize that Jesus is the one who lived a sinless life for fools. Jesus is the one who suffered for fools. Jesus is the one who died for fools. Jesus is the one who rose again for fools. And Jesus is the one who is going to return and bring fools into the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever so that we will never again dabble in folly, that we will be wise people forever and ever on the new earth. Isn't that great? We need Jesus. We need his life and his death and his resurrection to become truly wise the way God wants us to be wise. We need the power of the Holy Spirit empowering us to not be autonomous from God, but to respond to him in dependency as if he is the creator and we're the creature. Only through Jesus can we truly have the right attitude of fearing God. Only realizing in Christ that we are an eternal offense against God, yet we are eternally loved. That's the only recipe for fearing God. To realize that we were facing, we were a thread away from eternal punishment from God, yet in Christ now we are eternally secure. That breeds the kind of fear of God that is pleasing to God. Only in the cross can we accurately and appropriately fear God. I hope we see that. So, brothers and sisters, today, here's the message. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. We just pray that it would go out now with power and effect in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.